now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. Three Films and a Podcast has no claim of ownership on any film footage used in this episode. All film footage is owned in its entirety by the copyright holders and is used solely with the intent of film criticism, commentary, and education under fair use law. And just like every car in Too Fast, Too Furious, this podcast contains spoilers. Enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome back to Three Films and a Podcast, the show where three friends challenge each other to broaden their cinematic horizons through a series of themed rounds. My name is Tyler Beck, coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined, as always, by Matt Weiler in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Ahoy, ahoy. Hoy <laughs> hoy to you, sir, and Ben Lawhorn is also with us from Salt Lake City, Utah. Ben isn't here. <laughs> Can't do this for yes. the whole pod. Yes. Hello from Salt Lake City, from me and Tony. He couldn't, he couldn't commit, he couldn't but do the I whole appreciate time. the effort. <laughs> Tony. Um, if you're new to the show, welcome, first of all. And second, I think it's important that you know that we think of this movie as like a movie club. Um, and it's a movie club that you are now a part of Matt and Ben and I, uh, we've been participating in our own little three person club for quite a while now. Uh, when did we start doing this? I know we talk about this all the time, but I mean, between ourselves it was the beginning of 2020 for all three of us. Mm-hmm. Our first yeah. episode was like, I think in September or something like mm-hmm. that for uh, do the right thing. But yeah, the, the actual watch party started at the beginning of 2020 for the three yeah. of us. And it was inspired by something that you had tried to do. You tried to watch 500 movies in a year or something, which is bananas. And I wanted to try and do something similar to that, but not quite that aggressive. And so anyways, we started doing this and we would text back and forth and have our own chats. And we sort of realized that we had something worthy of sharing with the masses, so to speak. So uh, with that in mind, we started recording those conversations. And now here we are on the uh, Spotify's, the YouTubes or wherever else you're finding us today. And we really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. And of course, we appreciate all of our movie club members. Now, with that movie club in mind, I want to introduce the fourth person on your screen who is as yet anonymous. Uh, He's our special guest, one of our longest standing supporters of the podcast. Uh, He's coming to us from Salt Lake City, Utah, and his name is Justin Wong. Hey, glad to to be here. Glad to join you guys on this. This is going to be cool. For sure, man. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. we were, t- we were chatting before recording and yeah, I mean, you've been with us since the beginning. You were one of the first names in the watch parties and um, yeah, we, we really appreciate your support and uh, we're super, super excited to have you with us. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about the shining a movie, which uh, I uh, haven't seen until just now. And is one of the reasons we started to do this podcast. Um, and as you know, Justin, we try to get to know our movie club members as much as possible especially when we have a chance to get to talk to them on the pod, so to speak. Uh, so with that in mind, I think we'll just jump into our movie club questions and I'm going to let Ben go first. Yeah. I mean, before I get into my, I just want to say like, yeah, you, I think you were the first non family member <laughs> to sign up, which was yeah. honestly like meant a ton. Like, obviously we're grateful for all the family yeah. support and stuff, but to, to have someone on the outside, I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is, this was like, it meant a lot. So I'm, I'm super glad that Absolutely. you're here on the pod with us mm-hmm. and came and hung out at our uh, first in-person watch party, which was yeah. super cool too. So fun to go see Jurassic park. So anyways, 
we've said it over and over, but I'm super happy you're here and glad you're uh, in the movie club. Um, as far as my first question for the clubhouse, I mean, yours and my relationship. I mean, we we also used to work at the airport together with Fuzz and you and I would talk about movies all the time. I remember just exchanging texts with you. It's like, hey, the Criterion sales going on, just so you know, <laughs> you know, like back and forth, like, what'd you get? You know, that kind of a thing. So like I knew from the beginning, you know, that you were super into movies. So um, I'm I'm really curious to see what your answer is for this, because like my my question I like to ask people is that you're on a desert island. You've got a TV and somehow like a Blu-ray player ready to go. And you can take the um, whole filmography of one person, either an actor or a director. You have everything they've ever done. And if they're still alive, everything that they're going to do. Um, but I'm curious who your yeah desert Island actor or director would be. Uh, that's a good question. And uh, this one might be maybe could come across a little vanilla, but I, I'd have to go with Scorsese just for the body of work. Nice. Um, and also the, yeah. the talent that he's worked with. So I kind of kill him two birds, one stone there. Uh, you know, get in uh, De Niro, uh, DiCaprio, some of these great uh, all-time actors uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, with Scorsese. So, uh, yeah, I'd have to go with that. If it was a desert island and I could only pick. take one, he'd be the guy. I mean, I think it's an awesome choice. I think he gets not necessarily pigeonholed, but I think he just kind of gets grouped in as just like a gangster mm -hmm. movie guy. But yeah. I mean, honestly, you have some great movies. Like mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy Hugo. Like I think that's actually a really fun movie. So there is some like lighter fare with Scorsese that you, that you get, you know? Um, so, well, and his movies, like you kind of just said with Hugo, they're just fun. Like whether yeah. they're gangster movies or not, like, yeah, exactly. You know, you're in for a spectacle. You're in for a ride. He's always got great performances and interesting stories and mm -hmm. they're, they're beautiful to look at. So I don't, I don't think you can go wrong with Scorsese at all. No, you've got King of comedy and taxi drivers. So you have the, the good parts of Joker, you know? So that's, that's awesome. <laughs> we take that with you and Cape fear, which is just like one of the best remakes ever. So yeah, Scorsese is an awesome choice. I think it's red. Agreed. We're on board with that. Um, and not that, not that you need to hear us toot Ben's horn again. If you want to hear two guys toot Ben's horn constantly, <laughs> listen to this podcast. <laughs> that's for three films after dark. That's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole <laughs> different there, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Two okay. guys and Ben's horn. That is Patreon only. That is an exclusive on Patreon. You it's don't get that for fans, free. baby. <laughs> ben had the great idea of one of our rounds uh, where we we chose a movie that we ourselves loved that we felt nobody else either knew about or went very underappreciated, and we called it Unsung Gems. And so I've turned Ben's idea into my question and want to know what your unsung gem is, a movie that you love that you feel like nobody else really gives the time of day. Ooh, um, this one's a hard one for me too. I would, I would probably, <laughs> I would probably go with Badlands by Terrence Malick. Mm. Um, I don't think yeah, enough okay. people have seen that movie and I don't think enough people realize just how kind of like a director's tree, how much influence he's had on, on all the kind of directors that came after that. But that movie, I think informed a lot of stylistic choices, uh, a lot of writing choices um, that uh, other directors built on. So, yeah, I definitely think Badlands doesn't get enough uh, screen time with, with people. Awesome. I think we maybe could start a new segment here uh, because Badlands is streaming on HBO Max, and I've never seen it. I haven't and seen it either. Matt apparently hasn't seen it. Benjamin, 
I mean, it was actually part of that 500 in a year. That's when I watched okay. it. So I, I love it. Sissy Spacek and Martin yeah. Sheen, right? I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in honor of our guests, maybe we could try and do some sort of watch party around this and on some gems right watch now. party. Let's based on it. the yeah let's turn the pot off and let's, let's go watch a movie Live that's what stream. this is supposed to be about right <laughs> um matt i'm sorry i feel like i cut you off i don't know if you had any follow-ups for justin or no i just i mean it's interesting um i always love hearing hearing the uh the pick that people have and i always i like it when i haven't seen the movie so it's going on the watch list i love love me an unsung gem I mean, absolutely. And right now we're doing obviously directors like Hitchcock and now we're in a Kubrick and then we're going into Spielberg. But I think Malick falls into that of like when you have one of his movies on, you kind of know he has a very distinct style. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like he's he's, I don't know, pretty, pretty direct in what he does. So I think Badlands is a great choice. I don't where does that fall in his filmographies? That's like one of his that first, right? Second I believe film, maybe yeah. second film. Yeah, uh, it looked it. IMDb has it as his first. Well, oh, does it? As a producer. Oh, okay. Second director. He had nice. a short before that. So yeah, his first feature length directed film. Um, Yeah, pretty cool, man. I actually, so like, I didn't realize he'd been do- making films for that long. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've known about Malik for a while. It's, he's, so there's a lot of directors we could have picked in my opinion yeah. for this, uh, this, uh, three round series of directors um and yeah maybe we'll have to do uh an auteur round again because there's a couple directors like malik i'd like to dig into a little bit more um so i typically ask people who was their biggest influence uh in you know as far as informing their movie tastes or uh their tastes in you know pop culture and that sort of thing but uh you can you know i i would like to know that answer if you have it but the answer I've be or the question I've become more interested in is uh, any favorite experiences watching movies, whether it was um, just an experience you had watching with a certain person or like uh, a fun experience at a movie theater, that sort of thing. I, I get the feeling you've probably seen thousands of movies and had a bunch of experiences. So I'm curious if there's any that stand out in your mind, uh, you know, especially like we saw the Jurassic Park in theaters together and that was a big moment for me. That's the first time I've been in a theater for a year. So um, especially that's, that's just on my mind lately. So yeah, any, any cool experiences watching movies you've had, I'd love to hear about. Yeah. You know, I think there's, you know, people that you watch a lot of movies, there's kind of um, those moments that you have and they don't need to be super huge. I remember, you know, watching star Wars for the first time on VHS and as a kid, and it, it opened your eye to open my eyes to, you know, a new world of possibility when it came to, cinema yeah uh and you can take it all the way to um and you guys you know uh i had a real great experience in in los angeles at the arc light uh went with a good friend Mm -hmm. nate wolfley who who also was a kind of a supporter here oh right we watched uh uh, there will be blood i drink your milkshake i drink it up oh man that was just hell yeah that's awesome experience be able to watch it kind of on that type (laughs) in that type of theater um experience that so yeah i mean anywhere from uh and that's i think that's really the power power of movies uh, power of stories it could be on a small tv screen when you're a kid a huge theater and certain movies just kind of resonate with you so those are the type of experiences that i that i enjoy yeah that's beautiful man it's it's like it's the perfect argument as to why 
despite all the streaming options, like theaters, in my opinion, are always going to be around because I certainly love putting on headphones and watching a movie on my laptop. It's become like my favorite way to watch a movie because it feels so um, intimate, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just feels like your own little ecosystem, (laughs) but there is something to be said about going and being in the energy of the crowd and uh, just all those little things that you can only get uh, as a shared experience. So yeah, that's beautiful. And it's on a personal level. It's nice for me to get to know you a little bit more because, you know, we work together at sky West, but um, regrettably I never really, I didn't really get to know you that well. So I'm glad to be able to do that now and, and share a moment with you. So uh, I think it's really cool. So thank you for sharing. And again, thanks for being here. Um, well, I guess without any further ado, we can just get into today's movie. I kind of uh, buried the lead a little bit earlier, but we're talking about the 1980 Stanley Kubrick classic starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, it's called The Shining. Uh, this movie marks the beginning of our Kubrick round, which is the second of our three consecutive rounds of movies by favorite uh, famous directors that we've somehow missed during our personal cinematic journeys. Um, we sort of realized, you know, it fits the theme of this podcast, really. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that we thought we knew or thought we had seen and, and hadn't or, you know, different different directors that we thought we'd had experiences with that, you know, we 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 probably should make sure we <laughs> have these experiences. So Kubrick, for me, fell into that category, which is why I picked it. I've seen a handful of his stuff, but. There was some classics like the one we're discussing tonight that I hadn't seen. And uh, we we had to rectify that. So um, the first of these rounds was our Hitchcock round, which was uh, one of my favorite rounds uh, so far. I think we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, and so far, I'm enjoying the Kubrick round equally. The Shining was a really cool experience, uh, which is weird to say, given the subject matter <laughs> and, and the film. But I really did enjoy it. Um, so. I guess, Justin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie? Give us a brief synopsis and maybe a little bit about your personal experience with it. Like, you know, the first time you saw it or how, it, you know, when you saw it, that sort of thing. Cause it's, I, I get the feeling you probably saw it way before <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, quick take that, you know, the stories about this, uh, this gentleman, he takes his family uh, to be uh, to a hotel to be kind of the caretaker for it over the winter. Um, he's a writer, a frustrated writer. Um, and so, <laughs> aren't they all? Right? Um, and yeah, so it's their experience. It's just him, his wife, and his, and his son in this hotel uh, over the winter and, um, and, and a slow descent into uh, to madness there. So that's kind of the, 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 the quick take on that. Um, I, I did watch this, uh, I, I saw the movie. Uh, early nineties, I was, I was in middle school and, and Stephen King was kind of the, yeah, you know, uh, everyone was kind of reading his books. And so I remember I was at a friend's house and, uh, and we, and we, and, uh, he bought on pay-per-view. Oh, rad. Yeah. You know, and back then, yeah. Did he have you permission? Know, Please tell me yeah. he didn't have permission. <laughs> As the parents, cause you had to make a phone call. You had to call, oh, okay. into, uh, you know, the, 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 the cable company and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember watching it and, um, and it's interesting you know, Kubrick's an interesting director, you know, The Shining is a great movie, I think, because it, it does, uh, you could watch it for what it is, you know, a horror film, um, but uh, but you can take it, you know, 
see the nth level with uh, looking into it and dissecting it. Yeah. Obviously, when we're just young kids, we were just watching it because it was, you know, related to Stephen King and, um, mm-hmm. you know, horror film. And so I'll be honest, I wasn't, uh, you know, at that at that age, you're not I wasn't blown away by it. I thought sure. hey, that was a good movie. Yeah. You know, I had some scares in it. Um, some good, you know, some some imagery and stuff like that. But I, I came to appreciate it uh, much later. Yeah. How many times do you think you've seen this movie throughout your, um, I don't, I don't go back to it a lot. You know, I've probably seen it, you know, maybe five, six times, watched it five, six times. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one that if you chose to, I think you could get yourself deep in the weeds. I know there's the documentary, which now I'll finally get to watch uh, room 237 that dives into a lot of (laughs) stuff. I actually, I've just heard a bunch about it. I don't know exactly what it deals with. I, I think maybe Ben, you've seen it too, but, um, yeah, you could you could definitely get yourself <laughs> lost in the lore of this movie, which is one of my favorite things about it. Um, Matt, I'm curious what uh, what what's been your experience with? Uh, I don't know if you've seen it before this, um, you know, assignment. <laughs> but I'm curious what your experience <laughs> has been with this movie because before you, I just know, like you know, it gets referenced a lot and it gets borrowed from a lot, and you mm-hmm. can't get away from this movie, whether you've seen it or not. So yeah, I'm just curious what, what was yours? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always considered myself something of a cinephile, um, but it wasn't until I, a few years back, I worked with um, a guy who was like a true cinephile. Just made me feel like a total idiot. Like <laughs> made me feel like I'd only seen like 10 movies. Um, but uh, <laughs> he, he like had everything. And, and I remember we were both like really anticipating the ready player one adaptation coming out Mm. and in that trailer there was a reference to the shining and i hadn't seen the shining yet um and so i I confided in this man and i told him that i hadn't seen it that i'd (laughs) like to see it before the movie came out so that i could you know be in on the references in that movie right and so he he you know did me a solid put it under my car seat while no one was looking and uh (laughs) took it home watched it and got to enjoy it. And this was like in 2017. So I'm very late to the game as well. Um, But I I watched it at least at an age where I could appreciate, you know, the Kubrick is the Kubrick isms. Yeah. Can't even say that. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, so I, I really enjoyed some of those shots and and the composition and what he like put together in that movie. It's just still insane to me. And I like, some of those shots I just like want on a poster on my wall, you know? So, yeah. 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 Was it this movie, Ben or any, I guess I, anyone can, I just always default to Ben. Cause he's always been my, <laughs> my movie guy, but, um, wasn't this the one where he built a scale model of the, of the hotel and he would like spend hours lighting it from different angles and taking still photographs. I'd, I'd read that somewhere. I don't know if anyone else had, heard anything i think about so that. yeah i mean and the the maze and stuff like that like they built like i mean yeah kind of like a model of that as well so we get that super cool shot from the top of the maze yeah um i, I believe this is that one but I, I don't know for sure maybe justin can knows more about that it wouldn't surprise me it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me you know that's he definitely has that uh attention to detail um i don't for know sure. if that, that if, if he did build that um model set but I, yeah it wouldn't surprise me yeah the the guy he can his worlds that he creates i think it might be the biggest compliment i could give him is they feel very lived in and they feel very authentic you know like with mm-hmm. uh 
a stark contrast to this. Like this film feels a little dirty and grimy. Mainly, you know, the location has a lot to do with it, but the lighting and the subject matter. Whereas like 2001 feels like cold and shiny and sharp and, you know, it's all metallic and it just, but they both, right. And they both feel like very real, right? Like very realized, authentic location. So, I mean, I'd say the same too for the killing, which we watched earlier, you know, one of his early films, like it's, I think you could show someone the killing, the shining in 2001 and I don't know that there's really anything about them that would tie them together if you didn't know who directed them. You know, if you just show these to people, like, right. what do these have in common? Like, absolutely nothing. <laughs> like, great cinematography, stuff like that. But it's, I, don't, I don't know. I think he's, uh, I don't know. He, he does create a lot of different worlds. And I think he's one of the directors that can, like, really embody something completely different every single time which is really cool i'm excited like i picked paths of glory for next week's movie a little bit of a cheat on my end because i have seen it before but i wanted to watch it again so um we're watching that but i mean that's completely different and then we'll get into barry linden which i haven't seen before either but it just looks like you know this period piece that just i I don't know I, i i'm really excited to see it um as far as like my experience with the shining i came to it rather late as well because I, I know it had been on at one point at like a sleepover but i there, there's two genres i did not get into at all growing up and that was anything scary and anything that was western yeah <laughs> um <laughs> the westerns was just like strictly because of my mom she loved westerns and my mind is like well if she likes them they're not cool so i'm not watching them <laughs> and then horror movies just because like i don't like being scared i don't know that's not my thing Same. but as I've gotten older, I've come to like really love and appreciate those genres. Um, so I, I finally watched the shining, I think just when I was in school and in, in college and I don't, I didn't get it by any means. There's still a lot of stuff that I'm just like, man, I, I don't I don't know, you know, but <laughs> I know it's like very well done. It's very meticulous and it's, everything is very purposeful. So, I mean, also, so it seems, you know, like watching the making of mm-hmm. and just kind of realizing that, you know, that that moment when he's inside the freezer, like pounding on the door, like before they do that shot, Kubrick just gets on the floor. He's like, I wonder what this would look like. Then that's the shot they end up using. It's one of the coolest shots <laughs> yeah. of the whole movie. And it was just kind of like, I don't know, what's it look like from down here? Let's do that. And just the stark contrast, we'll get into it later, but like with Hitchcock, where every single frame is just like drawn out, we know exactly what we're doing. So it's interesting to see their different styles, which we'll talk about later on. But I definitely came into this a lot later. This is probably maybe my third or fourth viewing of the movie, something like that still is impactful, whether or not I like understand it, it it still really hits me. Um, I think this time I got to, I really noticed how haunting it was like, not just scary and creepy, but like, I don't know. There's just like, it gets under your skin. I think, you know, (laughs) in in the best way. So yeah, I, I loved it. I'm glad we, we watched it. Yeah. Same. I think, um, getting under your skin is the perfect, way to uh, talk about this movie because you know obviously this is my first time seeing it I watched it I think two days ago yeah it was on Saturday so um, and as I was watching it you know despite having some idea of what was going to happen and what the story is about because you know my my only personal experience with this film has been through references like there's that famous Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode no no go easy on the wee one his father's gonna go crazy and chop mole into haggis. What's haggis? <gasps> Boy, 
You read my thoughts. You've got the shining. You mean shining. Shh. You want to get sued? They knock this off. And that was literally the most of the shining I had seen besides, you know, I knew the here's Johnny thing. I had seen clips of him swinging the axe. I've seen certain different things. I've heard quotes, all that stuff. But as I was watching it, not to say that I wasn't enjoying it, but like, and not to say that it wasn't living up to my expectation, but there was sort of a little bit of like, maybe just because of the secondhand exposure I've had to it where like, Mm. it's not that I wasn't impressed, but it just was kind of like, it almost felt like almost like a line from the movie itself where like, I knew what was coming around every corner, right? Like I was having my own, I had my own shine for the shining, so to speak. (laughs) And so as I was watching, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is kind of what I'd expected. And like you, Ben, I'm not a huge fan of horror films. I'm, I've, uh, I've toughened up somewhat, but like (laughs) not a huge fan of them. So, but this one wasn't really scaring me. It was creepy. And I recognize that. But as far as like the actual terror, I didn't really feel it. So when it was first over, I was like, well, did I like that as much as I thought I would? But then I realized like I over like the, over the rest of the night, I was like, I wanted to watch it again. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so to say that it got under your skin or under my skin is a perfect way to to represent it for me because I, I want to watch this thing again. Like I've been sort of not obsessed with it, but just like I've thought about it since it ended. And I'm like, well, that's a perfect movie. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I have no way to like critically think about this movie other than like I haven't stopped thinking about it. And I remember I ran into my neighbor after I watched it and I was like proud to have told him like, dude, I finally just saw The Shining and he's a bit older than me. And so we we were talking about it out in the front yard and I was just like, I don't know. It just, it felt like a, like it felt like a cinematic moment for me. And I get why Mm -hmm. it's, it's had the hype that it has because, you know, we are, what's the math here? 30 something years later should be way easier for me to do this math. 41 (laughs) years later. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm 37 and this is, (laughs) yeah, I could have done that way easier, but um, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, I'm really glad that I finally got around to it. So, Again, shouts to the movie club for for helping me do this. Um, so we, we got to talk about Jack. We got to talk about a few things and a, a couple of different performances. But first, I want to talk about Jack. I mean, I feel like for me personally, this is like the Jack Nicholson role. Like, yeah, if if and when we do uh, Nicholson Rushmore, which I actually meant to put on the sheet here and we can try to do it on the fly or we can do it as a post later, I guess. but. Um, I don't know. I, I just, there's, there's a few different performances in here, which I truly loved. Um, and I just felt like we had to talk about Jack first. Cause you know, I put in my letterboxd review that like he, he's, he was able to get himself to a place mentally that like, I truly hope I never have the occasion or reason to visit personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was really, really great performance. I, I think it was Justin, you mentioned that it's a really slow burn. It's a real slow descent into madness, but it's a, it seems like a constant descent, right? Like it doesn't seem like it falls off a cliff and all of a sudden he's crazy. Like you can kind of track the progression as he, as he gets, as he gets a little loopier and a little crazier. Um, and I just, I was, I don't know, like I was just struck by it. I, I, I don't know. Did he win awards for this or I should have been a little bit more prepared here, but seems like he should have won an award for this. I um, think so. Let's see. 
nothing like some dead dead airspace <laughs> on a podcast but i don't know uh i, I think you're looking that up ben but Can anyways all the listeners look that up real quick yeah <laughs> email us three films pod at gmail.com <laughs> like and subscribe well, five I mean, stars on apple that is an interesting <laughs> point to bring up because i think you know kubrick's films are notoriously like i don't think any of his actors really won awards and that and i, I think you guys alluded you'll talk about that later his relationship with his actors but uh yeah. I think for the most part, you know, maybe how for how clinical his approach was with them, you don't see a lot of their, you know, the actors, the stars of his films uh, getting a lot of accolades. It's more of like it's a Kubrick film and they're a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's interesting. That's a good point. But I mean, I don't know, Jack, I, I, I think he might be legitimately crazy. Stay with me, please. Don't hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. Wendy, darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. (laughs) (laughs) There's a part where I'm like, I don't think he's acting. And I know, I assume he is. Uh, I don't know him personally, other than seeing him on the sidelines of Laker games and in movies and stuff. But I don't know, man. He just, it, yeah, it struck me. And I, I would be surprised if he didn't win something, but well, he was not even nominated for oh. a BAFTA, a golden globe or an Oscar for this performance. Well, my Oscar goes to Jack Nicholson, 1980. I don't well, know what he was up against, but we'll have to fix the Oscars in 1981. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ben, what do you think about Jack Nicholson here? Um, Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> Agreed. I, I agree with you. I, I got thinking about Rushmore too. Um, and yeah, it might be fun to do as a post or on the fly. I, I was worried. It was just like, we we're all just going to pick, you know, this and Chinatown and departed. It would just be, you know, all four of the same, but I'd be Those are three curious of to my hear. Jacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I think he was great in this. It was interesting reading about it that Stephen King did not want him at all because hmm he had played kind of mentally unstable people beforehand. And apparently in the book, you know, both he and Wendy, Jack and Wendy are super normal people going into it. And then they lose their minds. Whereas Stephen King just felt like once you see Jack Nicholson on screen, you're like, Oh, this guy's already kind of lost it. Yeah. And I don't think he was wrong. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's like kind of in that interview and whatever. And I'm like, Oh, this guy's like, maybe kind of losing it already seems a little unhinged for yeah sure. <laughs> exactly and so like it seems like the ho- like staying at the hotel just kind of like pushes him even more rather than like creating the craziness so that's fair i totally see his point in that i think one of the people he wanted was john voight which was like that's weird to me but um <laughs> yeah this is like this is a quintessential jack performance I can't imagine him not doing this now. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who, who I would even think of replacing him with. Um, he was, I mean, very strong, very intimidating. And yeah, I mean, it was just, it's a, I think it's a masterful performance into like derangement, you know, and you put it best. I think just, it's a slow burn. Like Justin said, like, it's just, it, it carries all the way throughout until those last scenes, you know, going through the maze, dragging his foot through the snow. Like, yeah, this guy has completely lost his mind. And yeah. that's awesome. He did such a good job. I think it was great. Yeah, for sure. How about you, Matt? What do you think? Um, yeah, I was, I was going to bring up uh, the same thing that Ben brought up. Uh, King's Stephen King's critique of him. 
you know, the, the second he's in that job interview, you're like, this is not, this guy's not normal. Yeah. <laughs> Even like his face acting. Yeah. His face acting. Like you said, Tyler, like, is he acting like this yeah. is just Jack Nicholson's face. Right. Yeah. <laughs> his mannerisms just already communicated that this guy by the end of this movie is going to be insane. Um, yeah. And I, I don't really have a problem with that. I didn't read the book. And so I had nothing like I had no personal investment in this. And we'll talk about that later. Um, adaptations and whether they should be the same or why people hold them together. But I, I, I liked Jack in this role uh, just because even though like, He's kind of been that character in every movie since mm-hmm. in some yeah. way or another. He's kind of always just Jack Nicholson, right? It's yeah. He's one of those actors where, you know what you're getting. Um, yeah. but I mean, this could be a Joker time, origin story. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it this, really could, could be. this could be that thing. Yeah. He'd be better than Joker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They could literally put makeup on him, call this Joker and have this um. be the original one. Um, but it's all he's also like one of those actors where you typecast him for this because you know that he'll just do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And so that the scene where let's see, I can't remember exactly what, what part it is, but he's like he's got stubble and his I think his wife and the and Danny are out um in the maze and he's just like he's like got that weird like look just the like Kubrick stare, just like yeah, slow push yeah. in on him. Yeah. It's like I am going crazy looking at him. <laughs> yeah. The man and can so, play crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all for his performance here. Um, it was, it's interesting what you pointed out, Justin, that like none of them really won accolades for their acting. It is very much like people just fit into a Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the star of the movie is that it's a Kubrick movie. So, um, but needless to say, his performance was great. Shelley Duvall was great. Um, we'll, I guess we'll talk about her in a second, uh, but I loved it. Yeah. yeah just, to, I just want to say real quick, uh, De Niro won for raging bull that year, which is All right, fair that's a head to head knockout fight, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yeah. but still, I think he could have taken some of these spots of the other nominees in there, but, uh, it's hard to, hard to argue with De Niro. That's for sure. Yeah, that's fair. All right. I'll let De Niro have it. <laughs> Just this um, one. <laughs> before we move on to our next, uh, the next topic, did you have anything else you wanted to add about Jack there, Justin? Well, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting, especially when you have an actor with that, you know, that body work. And, and we have the benefit of hindsight you sure. know, a lot of times looking back at it, but you see it in some actors, you know, you see, I think that for me, the shining, when I look at that, that's like on the cusp of, you know, Jack becoming, doing his Jack thing, you know, when yeah. you kind of watch the movie and you see, you know, I've seen that with like Al Pacino, you look at some like uh, Jack Nicholson's early films, like uh, five easy pieces, mm-hmm. easy rider. Yeah. He's writer. It, it's, a, it's a lot different style. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of, you know, I'm sure he encouraged by directors or by box office or by whatever to say, Hey, this is kind of your thing. This is why people come to <laughs> yeah. you. And um, so I think you start seeing some beginnings of that in, in the, in the shining. Um kind of that style that he's kind of adapted, like, you know, Al Pacino's done as well. Daniel Day-Lewis has kind of fallen into that to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, it might be blasphemy, but, you know, it's, you kind of start <laughs> seeing those trends. And I think that's where we, at least for me, when I look at his body work, Jack Nicholson's, when I see The Shining, I, I kind of see him keying in on, on that, uh, that style. For sure. And it feels like, 
I mean, maybe just to me and maybe just because it's so fresh, but this really did feel like he accessed a little bit beyond his normal ability to go crazy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when he's swinging that ax at the door, like the guy, he looks fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I know he's supposed to, and I know he always kind of does, but to me, he looked like transcendent beyond the normal insanity he can push he himself like a to. rabid animal oh, yeah man. and like oh, you said if, ben, you, if you look at that scene um and i just re- i just rewatched it recently i mean that first swing you can see in his face i mean he's smiling oh yeah yeah and then the second swing his like that his demeanor changes immediately and he's so pissed. it's uh you see a huge range of emotion in, in that in that scene where he's swinging that axe for sure and the way that was shot too with the camera following oh my the, god the i axe. love it so much i like that's unbelievable it's really really fucking cool stuff um, in that same scene, we have Shelly Duvall, poor Shelly Duvall on the other end of the, on the other end of the wall there. Um, and despite the fact that the first thing I think of when I think of the shining is Jack Nicholson, I think Shelly Duvall, like she really carries this movie because, you know, for the most part, Jack is just kind of off doing his own thing. And that's like the plot of the movie. He's trying mm-hmm. to do his own thing. Uh, and his damn wife and kids keep bugging him. Uh, and this crazy haunted hotel isn't helping either. So we got to talk about Shelly. Um, not only just her performance, but also kind of what it took to get this performance out of her. Um, and, you know, whether or not it was all worth it <laughs> and or necessary. Um, because, you know, like I said, for me, this is a, a Jack Nicholson movie and it's a Kubrick movie. but she, I don't know. She, I, I was, I was surprised for a number of reasons how much I liked her in this movie. And when I, what I, what I mean by that is, is like, you know, as unfortunate as it is, uh, guys like Kubrick and guys like the guy from the last round we watched Hitchcock, they're not known for their treatment or uh, reverence for women. And so the fact that Shelley seem to have a part and a performance that was as important to this movie as it was honestly sort of surprised me. I just thought she would be the screaming woman on the other side of the X, which in some ways she was, but I don't know. I just, uh, I was, I was really taken with her performance. Uh, I could feel her terror. I could feel her worry. I could feel her love for her family. So, um, yeah, I want to just talk about that a little bit. And, uh, Justin, you're our guest. Uh, so let's let's start with you. What do you think about Shelley Duvall here? Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, she did a great job. You know, I mean, it's you watch her and I think, it, you know, it's 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 a fine line between kind of like a, a hysterical, you know, hysterics of watching that or enduring that mm-hmm. and having it be watchable. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I think she did a great job, of, you know, balancing that. Showing that uh, that true fear that through, yeah. you know, true terror throughout the film. Um, and, you know, and, and she matched Jack, you know, with regards to, you know, his slow descent and her increased uh, awareness mm-hmm. of what was happening. Um, good point. And it builds, it builds evenly and it builds well. Um, yeah. And certainly I, I'm not an actor, um, but uh, not with that you know, ability to, <laughs> to, to match his intensity, his insanity with her fear. Yeah. Um, I think she did a great job. Yeah, that's a good point. It, I, I'd really, for whatever reason, it hadn't struck me that, you know, she goes from being sort of like 
annoyed that she kind of has that she has to do this to being like truly terrified and and like even with her relationship with Danny you know it goes from like just general worry about her kid to like an understanding of like oh shit like this kid has something that I don't understand mm-hmm. uh, so that's a really good point and it's a slow burn both ways and it's just it speaks to Kubrick what about um what about you Matt what do you think about Shelley Duvall here so I mean and the treatment of <laughs> I I, I haven't watched the documentary. Um, I know that Kubrick was difficult to work with. Um, several actors and actresses have said so. Um, many have, you know, the full spectrum of experiences with them. And so I don't really know the extent and I don't know specific things that she had to go through with him during the filming of this movie. Um, ben could probably speak more to that um, if he chooses to. But I will say that, like, I mean, you take the movie Whiplash, and you have, you know, this, this sort of like genius musician who's like pushing someone to the brink, trying to bring something out of them. And in their own eyes, it's, it justifies the abuse. It justifies all kinds of like bad treatment. And we, we know, like we've seen in sports, like really hard coaches, you know, some of the greatest athletes had really tough coaches and, you know, you see it time and again, and abuse, you know, can be a big motivator sometimes. <laughs> uh, but in my in my view it's never worth it um yeah and uh i would i would take a vanilla performance any day of the week over a terrific performance that took a ton of abuse to get to mm. um as far as her performance in the movie um i know that Ke- stephen king criticized her for being just like a a big dummy who just was there to scream and after my first viewing a few years back, I maybe would agree with that assessment of her. Uh, but watching this again, I actually couldn't disagree with it more. Like, it, yeah. One, one thing about Kubrick and Hitchcock did this really well. And I feel like these older filmmakers did this way better than today's. She's got her nose in a book at the at the kitchen table. There's books coming off the shelf at their house at their little house, and uh, you know Jack talks about her being like a big horror book nut. You know in the in the job interview and so they're establishing her early on and as the movie progresses mm-hmm. not only is she like basically she's the one taking care of the hotel while jack just hangs out and throws tennis balls at the wall um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so solid scene also the, the throwing the tennis ball scene i, I, I literally was laughing out loud it's like man working so hard trust yeah. the process um <laughs> But yeah, she's she's taken on everything. She's taken on this giant hotel. She's taking on being the parent. She's taken on, you know, taking care of Jack as well. And so uh, she's there to basically, you know, be everything for everybody. And so she's the rock of the family in the hotel. And I just, I feel like when when it came time for her to become, you know, this screaming, you know, character because a horror has come to life. It's like, but she I already kind of knew, like she's seeing the writing on the wall because yeah. you know she's a horror, a horror nut. Yeah. So I just thought I thought her development was cool and interesting, and yeah, I agree. She's she did outstanding. Sure. Yeah, I, I think she was. I mean, just to echo Tyler's point, like I think, I mean, you can make the argument that she kind of carried the film. I mean, I know this is like a Jack movie, and that's how it gets seen, and I don't disagree with that, but I think it's almost more impressive that she wasn't overshadowed by him in my opinion like she she holds right. her own with him i think if you have a, a wife who 
not a wife, but like an, an actress who can't like carry her weight, you know, with Jack, this just becomes a completely different movie. Whereas you, you have someone that you can sympathize with and, you know, you, you want to win and you, you see her kind of like slowly deteriorating as well, just because of her surroundings. Um, but yeah, I think it, it was great. It's, it's a hard, like it is, it's a fine line between like what's worth it for the final product, you know, like watching the behind the scenes. So uh, Kubrick's wife, Vivian was just shooting behind the scenes stuff. And that's the making of the shining documentary it was by her. And there are some talking head interviews and Shelly afterwards, you know, it's like, I understand what he was doing. Like it was awful at the time, you know, but she's like, you, you don't feel emotions about something that you don't hate. Like I hated it at the moment, but I also know that that's why the movie is so good. If it hadn't been for that, you know, volley of ideas, and sometimes butting of heads together, it wouldn't have come out as good as it did. And it also helps get the emotion up and the concentration up because it builds up anger, actually, and you, you get more out of yourself. And he knew that, and he knew he was getting more out of me by doing that. So it was sort of like a game. It's a very candid interview, so it, there's other things that she talks about that, you know, like a PR person wouldn't say, yeah, please talk about this. So it doesn't make, <laughs> I don't think this was like a thing that they told her to say, cause it just felt very honest and real. So with some, you know, hindsight, she was like, okay, yeah, like I get what he was doing. It really sucked at the time, but the movie is so great because I was that like, you know, crazy, yeah. um, you know, like doing 35 takes of her like walking or whatever it was like going back up the stairs swinging the bat and stuff and just like she talked about like having to wake up on monday realizing that you just have to cry all day long and she ended up drinking so much water just to stay hydrated because she ran out of tears you know it's like it's insane and there's a there's a clip in there behind the scenes where uh kubrick tells his wife who's filming you know like don't sympathize with shelly and she's like, well, why not? You know, he's like, it doesn't help her at all. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> man, damn. this dude is just like letting her have it. And like, I, I don't know, like you get the final product. It's like, I, I get it. Cause Shelly was like amazing, but also like, I don't know, try letting her just act, you know, <laughs> like maybe don't yeah. like put her through the torture, just see and if she can do trust. it on her own first. Yeah. But you know, a lot of actors that have worked with him have said like take 35 is kind of when it starts. Like those first 34 are rehearsal. And that's like kind of when it starts. And it's insane because we hear about directors now that do that. I think the, the most famous one now is Fincher. We heard, you know, the opening scene of Social Network, they shot 99 times. But having a discussion back and forth is a lot different than like hysterically crying and swinging yeah. a bat. Like, I, I guess however many takes they did going up those stairs was the equivalent of walking up the Empire State Building. And like, that's mm. crazy to me, you know? And then like, but she's still, they both still have to act, you know? And yeah. on a much lesser level i would assume like he did he he kind of treated jack the same way on certain things where i guess for two weeks he only sent jack like cheese sandwiches which jack yeah. nicholson hates you know and it's like <laughs> yeah if i got fed like if someone just sent me like bananas and cottage cheese for two weeks i would lose my mind I'm like i don't want to eat this this is horrible i hate yeah. this so like i get it like if you're forced to do that but i think there's something different you know about like just on set the onset kind of torture almost just to get a, a reaction out of someone so I loved Shelley's performance. It's another person that Stephen King did not want because he envisioned the mom being like 
she was like a blonde cheerleader in high school has never had to like try for anything. Everything was just handed to her and then gets put mm. in the situation where she, where she has to learn to adapt. And like, yeah, again, that's a different story, obviously, you know, but I think, I think Shelly was great. I mm-hmm. hate what it did to her, you know, like uh, she's yeah. like kind of out of the scene now, but um, it was, it was an amazing performance that I think held its own with Jack Nicholson's, which I, I think is the highest compliment you can give. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I agree with everything you guys have said. I mean, like I said, I was uh, surprised how important she was to the movie. Uh, and, you know, I, it's hard to say, man, and we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but you know, like it, in the end, he's a guy, he Kubrick is a, <clears throat> is a guy with a vision and, you know, that the end result, I assume, is the vision he was going for. And it's a, a vision that despite the subject matter and the stuff, you know, the stories behind it, I, I enjoy it. And I'm glad that it exists. So it's it's something that's tough to juggle. And yeah, maybe he could have just and should have just had a little more trust in his talent that they could produce the vision without all that torment and torture. Yeah. And, you know having just come off our Hitchcock round. Now we've explored two directors, uh, two incredible auteurs with very specific visions and filmmaking styles. And I want to talk a little bit more about this and the notorious difficulty on set and the way they treated their talent, uh, you know, specifically women or, you know, anyone on set really. Um, And speaking about the shining specifically, like we've talked about, it's sort of become the thing of legend and uh, the way that, it all went down on set and I don't know. I just, I'm curious if it really does, if the ends really do justify the means, because I I mean, it kind of does, (laughs) right? Like, like we're, we're four people 40 something years later. Uh, Again, we'll check that math, but, and we're still talking about it. And it's something that, you know, having, seen it a few days ago it hasn't left my mind and it's a piece of art that has influenced uh, artists moving forward and filmmakers moving forward and writers and it's been referenced and it's been uh revered and all these things but despite all that there was you know some truly terrible things behind it and it's just something that's difficult to wrestle with and you know the movie is truly like it feels evil when you're watching it right it feels creepy so it is a strange thing to be so uh enamored by something that really does seem so dark and twisted and maybe that's really the only way to get it to feel that dark and twisted and you know maybe that's not true but we've seen it with you know unfortunately heath ledger like the places he had to take himself to get the performance he got out of the joker and what ultimately ended up happening to him but I'm sure there's other examples of 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 actors reaching these depths that didn't have to go through this mental torment. And I don't know. I'm just it's just something that I've been wrestling with. If if it really does, if the ends really do justify the means and if maybe there could have been a little more uh, happy and chill, <laughs> so to speak, on set. And I'm curious, Justin, what do you think about all that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at film, you know, film is the ultimate collaborative art yeah you know you can be a perfectionist you know photographer painter and and you're on your own 
and you can realize your own vision and the difficulty with film and, you know, Kubrick or the director's perspective, he can't, you know, he can't be on the other side of the camera. So um, if you look at it from a pure, like I'm creating a work of art here and I'm trying to realize the potential um, of my performers and the potential of my, my vision, uh, you can see, I mean, everything else that goes into it, you know, the set design, the costume design, every, you know, getting the right angles. He's, he's going to push to get that performance sure. he wants, you know, to, to make it all worth it, you know, and to give up at that point, I'm sure it must be very difficult for a director to say, well, close enough, sure. you know, type sure. thing. Um, whether it's worth it, you know, I mean, I think I read it was like uh, 127 takes with that baseball bat, yeah. you know, um, now he, there could be a method to his madness, you know, he might, um, you know, he might've felt that he needed that to get her to that, to that place, but it cuts both ways. You know, he could argue that it took the actor 127 takes, but it also took the director 127 takes to get that performance out. So, yeah. um, to be fair, it, it could be, you can argue, Hey, that's your, 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 your deficiency as a director. Sure. It's a good know, point. For require that many takes uh, to get that performance out of your actor. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, everyone has a choice. You know, you can choose to do the movie. You can choose not to do the movie. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting <laughs> angle that I hadn't thought about. Where Kubrick may have some of the, he may be able to realize vision in a way that a lot of directors can't. But maybe he's actually a shitty director <laughs> because <laughs> if the like the point of a director is to direct your talent to uh, make your you know to create your vision, and so. Uh, maybe he's just a really bad director who's somehow was given the green light to waste that much film and spend as much time and effort because they knew the vision that would be realized would be something worth putting on screen and, and worth going through all that trouble. But it's, that's a good angle I've never heard before. And it's, it's going to be something that bounces around my head <laughs> for, for a while. Ben, I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you, whoever his editor was for this thing and, and the person that had to sit through those and view those 127 takes. Right. I mean, <laughs> at some point, you're not going to be able to tell. It's like that, uh, you know, show me 10 of them and tell me the difference. Sure. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's that story from Fight Club? He made they made the guy fall down the stairs like 30 times and then they ended up using the first take or something. Like, yeah. I'd be curious if there was something similar here oh, with, with The Shining. Um. Yeah, I think it's a good point, you know, when it comes to the directors, because we have Hitchcock where we talked about, I think it was North by Northwest and they cut like eight seconds, you know, yeah. on the cutting room floor and everything else was used. And that blows my mind. And then we have 120 something takes of the baseball bat scene, you know, and I think in the Guinness book, that scene um, where Danny is talking to Halloran, like at the, you know, in the kitchen or whatever they did. I believe it's the Guinness world record, 147 takes they did of that, mm. which is insane. Um, to a kid? Yeah. And, and the guy who was in that, the the adult, after this, he went to work with Clint Eastwood, who was notorious for just like <laughs> one take. He's like, cool, we got it, let's go. Yeah. And I mean, this is all IMDb trivia, so, you know, grain of salt or whatever. Um, but they said like after his first take, like he just kind of went up and hugged Clint. He's like, thank you so much. Like after having to do all these takes, with like I can't imagine the dynamic of going from one person to someone who's just like, cool. Yeah, we got it. Let's go next scene. Um, I think that that's great for me. My, my feelings on this are that a lot of it 
it comes down to the the director doing this to an actor versus an actor doing it to themselves because we have we talked before like Dustin Hoffman staying up for like 48 hours mm. you know because he, he was supposed to look just like really weary and everything you know just and you know, I forget who he was working opposite he's like well, have you tried acting you know yeah. or we get <laughs> Nick Cage who's like very method and went on like a weekend bender just got completely blitzed and videotaped it all to see what his behavior was like in preparation for leaving Las Vegas mm. and like okay that's great if that's if that's what you want to do that's awesome but there's only so much you can do when you're on set and the director <laughs> wants to do this you know I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the big difference here is like is the actor signing up for themselves to do it like cool I'll, I'll do the research whatever or do you have someone like Kubrick who doesn't even feel like it starts until take 35, you know, like again, referencing this documentary, there's a scene in there where it's, you know, when Jack is um, going into the, trying to go into the bathroom before he starts using the ax and we see part of the scene and then they yell cut and Kubrick's like, I liked a few of the things in there. Those were good. Here's the other ones I want you to work on, you know? So he's like, these three things were good. I want you to work on these two things. And so it just sounds like that's just kind of his process, you know, over and over again. He's like, all right, now we've got four. We've got one more to work on. And like, that's just exhausting. But he also just sounds like a guy who doesn't do rehearsals. He's just like, cool, we're going to film everything. You know, we'll take whatever we can. So sounds like a guy that was born for digital Oh my God. Yeah. Right. This is, this is what he was made for. Um, so yeah, I don't know that. I mean, it, it's hard to, it's hard for me to sign off on like, yeah, it's cool for the directors to do this, you know, to, to get their vision. Cause I agree. I just think in my mind, it's like, well, maybe just like be a better director up front, yeah. you know, because then maybe you don't have to do all those takes. I mean, another one of them, I think it was that scene inside the um, the kitchen where they're talking to each other. And after take 40, the guy's name is um, Scatman. Yeah. And he, he just like turned to Cooper. He's like, what do you want? You know? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I think I would feel the same. I think Matt's reference of whiplash was great. Cause it's that whole scene of like, you're not my tempo. Like, are you like, are you dragging, you know, whatever. It's like, he played it the same every time. And he just told him that he was playing it wrong. Not quite my tempo. And that's kind of what it feels like where you're losing your mind. Like, I, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I'm doing what you're telling me to do. Why are we doing this over and over? And that would be exhausting. But at the same time, you're just like, I don't know. It's hard to call him one of the best directors of all time. He is, but his process just seems fucking his, exhausting. His like to have to put up with that. Are incredible. Yeah, exactly. But but it's like this getting is the first there time is I've just like ever considered him as maybe not a good director, just yeah, a great filmmaker. And I mean, Shelley Duvall talked about that as well. She just said like we both had the same mean in mind, but we just had different ways of getting there. It, you just you appreciate all the pain. I mean, you you always dislike whatever the cause is uh, of pain. You always resent it. So I resented Stanley at times because he pushed me and it hurt. And I resented him for it. I thought, why do you want to do this to me? How can you do this to me? You know, you agonize over it. And it's just a necessary turmoil to get out of it what you want out of it. I mean, we had the same end in mind. It was just that sometimes we differed in our means. And by the end, the means met. But unfortunately, he's the director. So you're going to take his path. You know, like we've got the same destination, but we've, we're getting there different ways. But at some point, it's like, I'm the guy with the camera. You've got to adapt to what I want. And, you know, she's like, it's a great movie. We got what he wanted. Like, it's, it's really good. We just we're trying to get there different ways. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. 
What do you think, Matt? Uh, similar, piggybacking off what Ben said, I think, um, I think there are other means to achieve similar results. Um, I, I, I certainly don't justify directors, you know, treating treating people in a worse way or, or, or going through extreme measures to elicit certain performances. I much prefer those performances to come, you know, from the actor themselves or have them put themselves through something like that. Um, and I feel like today we're, we're hearing more about that, the method acting that, yeah. you know, Ben referred to uh, where they're willing to go through extreme lengths to, to do their craft. And it's not the director trying to, you know, Ruin force them into, into something. <laughs> um, but, uh, and like I look at, and I already made the comparison to sports, but uh, one of the, one of the big differences between like the greats are like Michael Jordan, and Kobe, they had, they had the drive, they had it in them to, mm. to perform. It wasn't some crazy psycho, you know, making them do things over and over and over again. And I mean, as Americans, we like to, you know, pop our chests in comparison to like some of the other countries that like force their athletes to do things and are very like, uh, I guess abusive in, in regards to performances. And I think, I, I think it's hard to justify, um, that, that, uh, that strategy. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, for the type of director that Kubrick was, I mean, they were actors in his painting, you know, like yeah. it was his painting. Yeah. They needed to be a certain way. And he was the painter. Um, at, to some extent, I mean, the actors knew that they were in a Kubrick movie and I know that they wanted a paycheck. Maybe they didn't know what they, exactly what they were signing up for. Um, but uh, t- to some extent they gave, you know, consent to some extent, but yeah. I don't think that excuses. I don't think that excuses everything. I'd be curious to see how his process changed over time. Cause thinking back to the killing and paths of glory, like when, you know, Michael Douglas, or not, I mean, Kirk Douglas and we get Kirk Douglas, Kirk, right? Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Sterling Hayden are the bigger names than Stanley Kubrick. Mm. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that he's putting them through 40 takes, you know <laughs> what I mean? So I, I'm wondering when that transition happened to when it's like, but yeah, I worked with this, uh, this new director. He was great to be like, okay, I'm going on a Kubrick film. I've got to be ready to like, you know, they saw shot like six days a week for 16 hours sometimes, you know, a day. That's exhausting. But I, I have a hard time believing that young Kubrick was like, all right, Sterling Hayden, we're doing this for the 45th time. He'd be like, yeah. no, fuck you, man. Like we got the shot. Let's move on. Like I'm, I'm too good for this stuff. So I, I don't know. I, I just, that was just a random thought I had. Like when, when did this transition happen that he became like the Kubrick? brick that we know now like when did he get his green light yeah yeah exactly speaking about the shining specifically like his method of the you know it seemed that he had a clear idea that i'm going to drive my actors legitimately crazy so they look legitimately crazy on screen and that seems like something like a film student would come up with right like yeah that seems like something i would have come up with like oh and I know I tried to do this to you at one point, Ben, I wrote a script where you had to run in your boxers through a winter's night in the middle, in the middle of the night. Luckily for you, that never happened. Yes. Uh, (laughs) But you know, it just sounds like, it just sounds like some shit. Someone, it, it it sounds better on paper than I think it, it really is. And I I would be curious to see the cut of the shining where that didn't happen. All Mm -hmm. things, the same, same actors, same, 
location, same time frame, everything. But let's just, I would be curious to see what like take six looked like. Yeah, exactly. For every shot. You if know, you have like 10 takes at most, what movie could you put together? Like how different would it be than right. this one? Because, you know, he's such a meticulous person. You know that the camera angle didn't change. You know, the lighting was, this. you know, everything was the same except for ostensibly the performance. Yeah. I have my doubts whether or not the performances were actually better or worse. Um, <laughs> and I love The Shining. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that it exists the way that it does. I'm sad for the way that it happened. And I would be curious to see how it could have been different. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe uh, it, it's one of those unfortunate things where something like the shining had to happen so that it was better going forward. Right. Um, and all that to say like uh, Shelly Duvall, if you're out there, like, and subscribe, we're on your side here. <laughs> I wish you. you, I wish you hadn't gone through that. Um, I, I think this is my first experience with you. Join our Patreon. Uh, join our Patreon. Truly enjoyed the performance. And I'm sorry <laughs> that it happened to you. Um, but uh, I think we can, I mean, I think we could spend forever talking about this particular subject, but um, I want to move on a little bit. And, you know, I, I knew I was going to be the host of this episode. And when I was trying to come up with talking points, I honestly had a pretty hard time. And I'm glad that, you know, the episode has has gone the way that it has, because I wasn't quite sure, like, what could I even say about this film that hasn't been said? Uh, I don't have a way to critique it in a way that like seems poignant or relevant. Um, and I had so many questions. Like that's all I could think about was like, I have no idea what to even think about this movie. I just have more questions than answers. So for me to come up with prompts seems, I don't know. It, it was, it was, it seemed, it seemed to fool's errand. So I wanted to just open it up. I, I don't know if you guys have the same, uh, the same problem I do. I just wanted to open it up to each of us to ask one big question. If we have one, if you don't, that's totally fine. Um, and uh, I'll start with mine. And I was curious, does, does each is, is the shine hereditary? Uh, like we learned from the scat man that it, it seemed to be hereditary between him and his mother. Um, and also shout out to uh, Danny and, and, uh, and what is it? Carruthers? Is that, is that his name? The yeah. Scatman dude? Or Halloran, yeah. Halloran, his, yeah. His actual name is Scatman Crothers, but shout out Danny and Halloran. Um, I love both of them. Halloran was a, a source of warmth and levity that I think was dearly needed. Yeah. Uh, on his, I, I, I wrote in my letterbox review that I always hate the, uh, the, the black man or the black character dying first or being the only character that dies. Mm -hmm. um, it was especially a bummer here. I truly thought he was going to save the day. And he did, but I thought like, I thought they were all going to get away free and clear, but I guess a movie that promises an ax murderer, someone has to be at the end of that ax. And I'm just sad. It was the scat man. But anyways, um, I'm curious, like, is the shine something that's hereditary or does the hotel impose its shine onto people in the hotel? And like, why only in the winter or why was it only Jack? I don't know. I just, I was surprised to see so many ghosts in the movie. I thought, I thought the insanity was all in Jack's head, mm -hmm. but it seemed that every family member was touched in some, to some degree by, you know, visions and halluc or hallucinations or whatever. So um, yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Justin, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely interesting when you when you uh, get into the story and they, they you know they refer to uh, the Grady family. Yeah, obviously, but there's obviously families in between. Right. And so um, I think this, the, you know, the shine and, and, and the madness are kind of are, are separate. You know, I think um, I think that madness of the, of the hotel, I think it, um, you know, Jack was a kind of willing participant in that, yeah. you know, a weak character, you say. Um, and I do think the shine was just something, you know, just a special gift that uh, that Danny had that and that the um, Halloran immediately, you know, recognized in him, mm-hmm. you know. How'd you like some ice cream, Doc? What a cool moment, by the way, like, <laughs> and, and what a cool way, because at, at first you're like, oh shit, Halloran's the bad guy. He can read Danny's <laughs> mind, but then it, you know, it flips where he's the one that, he's our exposition and, but yeah, anyways, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I just, mm-hmm. I just wanted to note that that was like a cool little trick that, that um, we got, got thrown at us with uh, learning about the shine through Halloran. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, and I think that's, you know, necessary for, for this obvious particular story to work is, you know, Jack is kind of a willing character to descend in this madness. And you yeah. have Danny who has this ability to sense uh, that something is, is amiss here. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that relationship, uh, you know, in the film is uh, obviously is key. So you think the hotel has its own uh, supernatural ability that, unfortunately for Jack, he was just more susceptible to. Yeah, and it, it's interesting when you look at that supernatural because you, you know when you're watching the film, it, you can't really tell if it's uh, you're watching a supernatural ghost story or if it's just all in, you know, Jack's head. Yeah, mm-hmm. up until the freezer yeah when he gets let out and then it's kind of to be honest for, for me that was kind of you know looking back at it you know obviously not the first time i watched it but you know the more you watch it you're kind of disappointed in that because I, I was more interested in this this um you know that it was an internal madness yeah you know within mm-hmm. um and then you do definitely start seeing that that he almost is kind of dragging his family down you know then uh uh you know shelly's character starts seeing these things at the end um more frequently yeah you know, the ghosts and things like that so i think that's the part that surprised me was the fact that shelly could see this stuff mm-hmm. uh and what's her wendy wendy, uh, wendy shelly um <laughs> i just because i was like you know, i was like oh this is all <clears throat> in jack's head and danny just unfortunately has access to it as well mm-hmm. um but then when shelly could start seeing stuff i, I don't know it just kind of like it, it didn't take anything away from me it just was surprising i was like oh so it's the hotel it's not just like it seems it seems like these spirits exist in the hotel and danny can just see him and somehow they attach to jack but it seems like shelly has an attachment to him i don't know i just uh it, it it's a big old question mark for me and i, I matt i think you had this, a similar experience there yeah, I wondered it as well. Um, I don't know if it goes into more depth in the book about that type of thing. And also, I don't know, have any of you guys seen Dr. Sleep? I have not. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I wanted to see this first. Yeah. I, I wondered if that answered any of that, um, if it talks more about the shine and mm. what has the shine, what doesn't. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I perceive that similar to what Justin said, that the, the hotel has something of a shine, but also has a separate sort of supernatural thing about it. 
um, with these experiences that have happened over time. Yeah. Seeing like the concept, like where Stephen King came up with it, I think was really interesting because he was staying at kind of a big lodge like this as they were closing down. And I guess while they were waiting, he saw a group of nuns checking out and leaving and his thought process was like, well, what happens when like God leaves this place? Oh yeah. You know? And mm. it's like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. And and he also was th- working on a different story of a child who had ESP. So then like this, mm. that kind of became the shining. And so I, I had the same thoughts of like, I mean, it's, this is a weird analogy probably, but I mean, I got thinking about it with the pandemic when people weren't going into cities anymore and all of a sudden animals yeah. were like, Oh, can we come in here now? Like if people <laughs> yeah. aren't here and I kind of feel like oh, that, like when, when the hotel closes down, maybe that's when like the spirits or whatever, just like, cool. Now we've only got like three people to deal with and not like right. people coming Toy in and out. <laughs> so ghosts. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, exactly. It's like now they can, they can kind of come out and, and take control because I don't know, maybe it's just better for them when there's less people there or something. I have no idea, but just hearing that thought process of like, oh, what happens when like God leaves this hotel? It's like, yeah, it's kind Mm -hmm. of an interesting idea. Like Mm -hmm. when whatever's protecting you, so to speak, is gone, what happens then? You know, so I I think it's a. Well, and I think, you know, speaking from personal experience, you know, I live in a city that has a pretty sordid history. There's, there is purported to be plenty of ghosts here in Portland, Oregon. There are um, tours you can take where you go underneath the city and there's these uh, tunnels where uh, truly horrible uh, instances of human trafficking happened dating way back to, you know, Lewis and Clark times. Um, And you can go into some of these buildings and you can feel that history. And it's certainly, you know, for me personally, I can sort of, you can sort of feel that energy, right? Not necessarily in a negative way, but you can just feel the history. You can tell that things have been around a long time. And when things are empty and devoid of other people, living people around you, a lot of times that can feel like sort of a vacuum and, and, and those feelings can be a little bit heavier. So I think you're probably right, Ben. I think the point is there's just less people there's less life there to push out the dead, so mm. to speak. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Justin, did you have any, any one big question that you, that you wanted to ask or that was, that was non at you? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I mean, I, I went through a couple of viewings of this, of this movie, you know, you know, I think I'm pretty fair, you know, fairly, uh, you know, can, can watch films with a critical eye, but I'll tell you what, uh, I watched the, the documentary room 237. And I mean, that just, that's a rabbit hole. If you guys haven't seen <laughs> I need to, I've been, I almost wanted to watch to this watch more to watch that than to actually watch wow. the shining. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, there's people that have, you know, analyzed this film to the nth degree and, you know, I would love to one day sit down with Kubrick and just ask him, hey, is it everything that everyone says it is? <laughs> yeah. You know? Hopefully he just says yes, because <laughs> that's the beauty of this shining. When you when you start peeling the layers and there's just so many different ways to look at it. I mean, you have people saying it's, you know, an, uh, an allegory for, you know, Native Americans, for mm. the Holocaust, for the Apollo 11, you know, hoax, uh, all these things. And and I think it's a beautiful film from that regard. And, and Kubrick, you know, um, 
he's so deliberate right you know and he i think at some times you know maybe this film you know you some at some point you kind of feel like he's playing with you right you know hmm. and it, and it's great because the shining is is about you know this man losing his mind going through this and and as a viewer the more you watch this thing and try to you know read into everything you kind of go along with that as well and you're like i'm losing my mind <laughs> yeah follow this thing so um yeah you know that would be my one big question for him to say hey you know what the you know what were you doing here <laughs> i had the same so like along the lines of him being so meticulous like there's there's not a shot in this movie where he didn't control everything within the frame and it was sort of like when when i would see danny in his sweaters first of all those sweaters are incredible the mickey mouse sweater the apollo oh, 11 sweater mm-hmm. but but when you think when 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 you say that and when i think about it i noticed those things and i laughed about it but you know he's not just letting some costume designer throw a sweater on danny like it's obvious that that had to be approved and, and like that if kubrick wasn't okay with it it wasn't going to happen and did it mean anything? Does, does Kubrick just like Disneyland and space exploration? So he's like, yeah, a kid would wear that. I, you know, like, did it just make sense to Kubrick or did it mean something? Mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm excited to check out that documentary for, mm-hmm. for that reason. And I mean, it would just be cool. I mean, cause you, when you, we had the benefit of being able to watch this thing over and over, you know, but Kubrick is building something at a time where you may say, Hey, how many times are people going to watch this thing? Yeah. You know, and he builds so many things. It's almost like on a, he's counting on like a subconscious type saturation of every little, you know, continuity, quote unquote, error or change that he's making. Um, a, either he has a lot of faith in, in the viewer or he just has that vision where he, he knows, hey, people are going to be able to they're going to go back and they're going to watch this over and over again. And, and they're going to find these things, at, you know, as long as I put them in there. Something tells me it was more like. I'm going to put them in there regardless if they get it or not, <laughs> because there's no way he could have seen the, the ubiquity of like streaming video or even VHS or DVD, you know, or maybe he did, you know, maybe he's some savant and he's some, you know, fortune teller that, I mean, he's, he's obviously got vision and maybe his vision extends to the future as well. Um, ben, I think I cut you off there. What, what were you going to say? No, I mean, nothing. I was just going to kind of tie that into my question too. Cause you know, there's, like the scene in there where Shelly Duvall is looking down the hallway and you see the guy in the dog suit and then like the yeah. host sits up from the bed, zero context. It's not explored anymore or anything. It's like, okay, that happened. And then that's it. You know, it's nothing, yeah. but I guess in, in the book it's defined as like the host or the major D is having a homosexual relationship with a man who's dressed up as a dog and they explore it some more, you know, but he just started like, you know what? I'm just going to throw this in there for no reason. <laughs> like yeah. the people who have read the book will get the reference. And if they haven't, then it's just a weird thing, but that's fine. Cause this is the shining and you would just see weird stuff like this. Like, yeah, you know, the, the young naked woman who comes out of the tub and then all of a sudden you open your eyes and it is a decaying old woman that you're kissing. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. there are just things that happen here that don't necessarily have like any, any rhyme or reason. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to tie that into my question because We've obviously talked about it so much, and I think this is one of the most notorious cases of the author of the source material just vehemently like hating what was created, you know, from it in in the film. Did you like Kubrick's film of The Shining? No. And I'm someone I've talked about it on here before. One of my least favorite things ever to hear people say is that the book was better. 
it's like, yeah, no shit, man. Like you have like <laughs> so much more room in a book to give people's like inner dialogue and to define things more. Cause you're not on a time constraint. Like you can just have a super long book and that's fine. And that's immersive. And that's amazing. You know, there's a reason that the first few seasons of game of Thrones is so great. Cause they could like tell it over multiple hours. You know, they have these books, whereas now you just like, if you have one book, you're going to get one movie from it. And you just can't fit it all in. You know, like yeah. I, I had a film teacher who just said, like, that's the worst, the most annoying thing to hear someone say. Cause like, yeah, obviously not. But what we saw was this one person's interpretation of the source material. That's it. You know what I mean? So like, I, I like, I don't know. The thing that comes to my mind is like all the Harry Potters. Cause JK mm -hmm. Rowling, you know, kind of helped with the screenplays. But when it came to prisoner of Azkaban, like we got to see Alfonso Cuaron's version of that movie, which I loved, you know, and he got to put some flair in there from like his, his like Mexican heritage is, is sprinkled in there. And I think that's awesome. And you have stuff like fight club, you know, which I, I never know how to say the author's name, Chuck. What is it? Planyak. Yep. That guy. But he's <laughs> even said like, Oh, the movie hit, you know, hit the topics better than the book did. Like he loves right. the movie. So I guess, I don't know. I guess I just kind of wonder, like, obviously my feelings are out there on what I f think about when people say, that, you know, the book was better but I kind of curious on what we all think about, like how true to the source material do you think people have to stay? You know what I mean? Like if the author, should they be doing all these screenplays for the adaptation or is it kind of like once the rights are bought, it's like, cool, do whatever you want with it. This is your thing. I just, I was just kind of curious, I guess what, what people's thoughts are on that because that's always a topic and things are constantly getting adapted and I just feel like that's something that always comes up. You know, I remember leaving Harry Potter screenings for the uh, Goblet of Fire and the person we were with was so mad. I'm like, dude, that book is like 400, whatever, 700 pages yeah. long. It's like they were never going to fit that into two hours. It's just impossible. And I don't know. It's a really wide open ended question, but it's just a conversation I wanted to have because it's something that I'm I feel pretty passionate about. And this seems to be such a great example of such a divisiveness between the author and the the director of the film. Yeah. And I don't know how to put that out there as a question. I used to care more about adaptations, like probably as a teenager, like when a, when a adolescent or what do you call it? Young adult fiction, yeah. adolescent fiction. Um, when a young adult novel would be adapted, you'd be like, Oh, this is nothing like the book or they looked at this scene. And you're disappointed. And I think like that disappointment and the, the need to compare just comes from the love of the source material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's no like getting away from that until you can just, I feel like you have to understand kind of like you referred to Ben, like you have to understand the medium that it's being told in. Like if, if they wanted to create the book, they would just give you the book. Yeah. But film is just like a completely different experience. And, um, and that's, it's the same with comic books. Like comic books aren't movies and they aren't books for a reason. They're comic books yeah. because that's the medium that it's in. And when you adapt it to film, it has to be a film. And so I've be, I've learned to appreciate them as completely separate things. And you know, if it, if they accurately depict your favorite scene from the book, you know, that gives the bonus points. But for the most part, once it's given to someone for the project, I feel like it becomes sort of, it becomes their their voice telling the story. And so, I mean, we, we talked about um, ready player one earlier on. Um, and mm. a lot of people were upset about that movie, not being like the book. And to me, like, I thought it was a great Spielberg movie. Like I, I wasn't looking for a, 
you know, word for word adaptation of the book, but it became a Spielberg movie the second he became attached to the project. And right. I think The Shining was very much that way with Kubrick. And uh, to go along with uh, the previous question, I, I feel like with, with Kubrick, aesthetic is like such a big deal. Like there may be things that he's trying to tell that are like aha Easter eggs uh, spread throughout, but I feel like similar to like Wes Anderson, he might have a painting on the wall just because that painting elicits a certain feeling that he wants the audience to feel just in that yeah. setting. Hmm. And he's particular that way. And so it might not be like, Oh, that's supposed to be a reference to this other thing. And maybe it is, but maybe it's just, Oh, this makes the audience feel kind of uneasy in the scene. So that's why the painting's there. And so um, I think once this was picked up by Kubrick, it became a Kubrick film and it ceased to be a Stephen King novel. Yeah. I mean, that sort of echoes my thoughts on this topic exactly. I remember, uh, I think it's well documented on this pod that I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings films, specifically <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. I haven't actually seen The Hobbit, but I remember I've, I had read The Lord of the Rings and all that when I was younger. And when I came out of the movie, I remember hearing some true Lord of the Rings fans uh, complaining about the adaptation on film. And for me, I just was like, what, like, what do you, what do we mean by it's better? Right? Like, mm -hmm. they're, they're two separate things. And so like, when you say the book is better, do you just mean it just had more detail in it? Because like we've talked about, of course it did. Yeah. You can fit like a screenplay. How long is a typical screenplay? How many pages is a typical, is a typical screenplay for a movie? Like I think it's usually like a, a page a minute. Right. It's kind of the average. And, and like on those pages, we have descriptions of the scene and the blocking and uh, they talk, you know, you'll usually describe transitions and all these sorts of things that you're seeing on screen. So there's more words than there even is film, mm -hmm. right? Even in a screenplay. So like in a book, you're obviously going to have so much more opportunity to, to describe and detail and, and go all these sorts of different places. But in a film, it's like, you have 90 minutes or two hours or three hours or however long it is, you have a finite amount of time and only so much amount that you can show. And so does that mean that it's not as good as the movie? Because like we've talked about, we saw Jurassic Park in the theater, uh, what, a week ago, two weeks ago. And I've seen, I've, I've read the, the book Jurassic Park and there mm -hmm. are scenes in that book that don't end up in the movie. And you could argue like, oh, the book is better because there's so many cool scenes in that book that aren't in the movie. But I'll, I will watch Jurassic Park a thousand times before I ever read that book again. And I enjoyed the book. Yeah. So like the movie, despite not having quite as much, is better in my opinion. And I would say the same thing for The Lord of the Rings. And I'll probably get killed there by Lord of the Rings purists. But send your hate mail to Tyler. <laughs> I will watch all three extended versions again a thousand <laughs> times before i ever read those books again and it's not that the books aren't as good to me they're you know they're equally as good but like i don't know i feel like you have to separate the two and to say it's better mm -hmm. like if if you if it's truly a shitty movie then sure the the books are better than the movie but like there are times when they are at least equal and yeah. if not balanced the other direction where the the movie is better than the book like Mm -hmm. I'll say with Jurassic Park, for for instance, like nothing against Michael Crichton. I've, I've actually read a, a number of his books and I enjoyed them, but like I will always watch 
the movie before I read the book again. And so I, I just think like you, you have to separate the two. No matter that's how, how I am with holes. Yeah. <laughs> and I've only ever seen the movie. I've never seen the book. And I think we talked about this. Speaking of Stephen King, I'm a big fan of, he has a series of novels called the gunslinger uh, or, the, or the dark tower series. And it follows a gunslinger chasing the man in black. And if you've read the book, uh, you can you could understand it's sort of King's version of the Lord of the Rings. And I just know that any movie is going to be bad and like probably because there's just no way that they can fit everything into a movie. And so it's just not going to work. So to compare the two is just not even fair. And I've rambled on for far too long here. And I, I want to hear what Justin has to say about it. But I just I just don't think that you it's a fair comparison. But I'm curious what Justin thinks. No, I, I think, you know, Matt, Matt uh, hit it on the head with regards to you have to respect the medium and understand, you know, what the, the you know, the capabilities and the limitations are of it, for sure. Um, I think a lot of times when people get into it, it's, um, it's how they connected with it, you know, whether what, the, you know, the emotions or the experience they have when they read the book yeah. uh, versus what they saw in the movie um, can, can elicit uh, that type of reaction. Yeah. You know, Jurassic Park is a great example. You know, reading it is one thing, but in that context, especially at that age, um, you know, if you guys are like me and as a kid, you just love dinosaurs yeah. and you always wanted to be able to see one, just wanted, you know, you would have done anything to be able to see <laughs> right. one. And in that movie, that's why that, for, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, with Tyler there, you know, you're always going to, you know, that scene when um they're in the Jeep and they see the whatever Brachiosaurus for the first time, I mean, that, connected i connected with that moment mm-hmm. you know, more so than reading about it in, in, in the novel which which you know i read the uh, book as well so i think uh there's certain books you know that are going to do a better job at that um with regards to maybe the internal dialogue of a character and as you're reading it if it's character driven um as opposed to maybe you know a movie that uh is, is more plot driven or more action oriented or something where it's kind of being able to take uh you know basically put put a picture to to the description in in in, in the book so yeah. i can see how some people would gravitate towards that yeah um but yeah to be able to, to you know to call them to try to compare them as apples apples that that's that's going to be hard you know i think you'll always be a, you know be a losing argument you have to just respect hey they're, they're different mm-hmm. and you're going to get different things from them yeah sure. yeah a hundred percent like you just I don't know. I just don't think you can, I don't think it's a fair comparison, you know, even with, even with the game of Thrones, you know, I hated season eight with a pure hatred. (laughs) Like it bummed me out so much. Um, And, you know, there was no source material for it. So I think you could make the argument that like maybe a movie doesn't follow the source Uh, with the dark tower example I gave, there was a movie with Idris Elba that, was very loosely based on the source material. I didn't even watch it because I knew it was going to be, I knew it wasn't going to be what I wanted and it didn't seem like it was very good to begin with. So I think as long as like someone makes an effort to create a piece of art based on the source material that honors it in the best possible way, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same, you know, and uh, whether or not it's better, I guess is up for you to decide. But when people say it's better, I'm always curious what, what do they actually mean? Is it just more yeah. thorough or is it actually better? Well, 
I feel like that's as good a point as any to move on. Um, I think we could harp on that for a while. We obviously all have um, some fairly strong opinions there, but um, so who, who, who do we have left here? Who hasn't asked their big question yet? I think Matt, I think we still haven't heard your big question yet. I was just, I guess this would, this would be an opportunity for a, a potential, I guess, Rushmore conversation. And yeah. That would be, you know, best, best hotel movies. Gotcha. Where, where the setting was the hotel. I mean, this, it's unfair because Wes Anderson, kind of, I, feel, I feel like Wes Anderson took a ton of cues from this movie with his Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. the way he framed things and some of his, uh, his uh, aesthetic uh, tendencies. But, uh, I mean, those two movies come to mind for me, but like this movie is just like some of those ballroom shots and like the carpet. Yeah. So it was just so good, man. Just like so visually strong. And so I would say the, those two. Um, and then I had a hard time thinking of other ones. No, that's fair. I, I will say like, you know, they don't make hotels like they used to. Right. <laughs> like, so obviously the exterior shots of, that of the movie are filmed at timberline lodge which is local to me here in portland and you know i've obviously been to timberline and i i knew all that and it you know it has a certain look it has a certain aesthetic and it was you know it was built in a certain time and as far as the interior i know that was filmed at uh, a hotel and it was actually in colorado right uh uh, the photos were referenced from there, but I think they shot everything on sound studios in London, but they, oh, okay. they, yeah, he sent like photographers throughout the country to take different pictures of, or take pictures of different hotels and they just composited it all at a big studio. So, well, that's so cool. Literally just blew my mind. Cause I, it speaks <laughs> to the way he it's, it speaks to the set design and the production. Yeah. I mean, I, I see I people still was, walk into that hotel and like, Oh, is this the shining one? And like, no, I mean it is, but it wasn't <laughs> shot here, but this is what they referenced, you know, down to the chandeliers and everything. And, and this was a hotel in, in Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I did not know that that blows my mind. So I'm cool. going to have to ruminate on that for a minute. Um, but yeah, I think um, a hotel like the one that Kubrick referenced is a perfect place for, frankly most any movie or at least a few scenes of any movie um and yeah to put a movie like this in a hotel like that is is pretty incredible i don't i honestly don't know how to answer your question i can't i'm not very good off the top like this uh, as far as like best hotel movies so um i think i'll defer to our guest justin and see if he's got any ideas there hotel i've been trying to rack my brain on you that's (laughs) it's interesting you know i'm sure you go in the you know, if we look, you know, if we dig deep enough, I'm sure we'll find a plethora of them. Sure. But uh, yeah, I was kind of drawing a blank here, trying to think of uh, other other films that have been set in in hotels. That um... can we pretend Die Hard was in a hotel? <laughs> I know it's an office <laughs> complex. But it's a big building. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Psycho. That's not Psycho's not quite a hotel, you know, mm. but it's yeah, but very close though. though. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one I thought of was the Sofia Coppola movie Somewhere which takes place in the Chateau Marmont in LA. Or what about Lost in Translation? That's in a hotel most of the time. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. And uh, f- there's a movie called Four Rooms. Um, oh, and it's like right. four different segments okay. in a movie. Uh, Tarantino did one, Robert Rodriguez, like, and they each do a different segment. That's all kind of in a hotel. Um, 
Hmm. What's his name? I can't think of his name. Uh, Tim Roth. He plays like the the bellhop. I think he's the the through line for all four segments. So that one's pretty good too. I like that one. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, I'm trying to look at a list here because I know there's stuff out there. Oh, Hotel Rwanda. That was really cool. Home Alone um, Two. Home Alone Two. Oh, oh, callback to um the MVP. Her pick for a Rushmore Hotel Chevalier. Oh yeah, Natalie Portman. Um, yeah, I mean it's such a it's such an I hate to say easy in in like the pejorative sense, but you know hotels typically look pretty cool. They have uh, some you know design aesthetic on the inside, and like we talked about before, they they house a lot of people, and people leave remnants of themselves, both like literally and in the like this the more spiritual sense. So. It's a pretty easy place to to put a movie um, and in theory that's a foreign location to everybody that's there it's not right their house or anything mm-hmm. yeah um i think the last thing i want to talk about because uh as much as we've talked about the visual aesthetic of this movie and the performances one of my favorite things about this was was the score and how much it in you know the the audio of a film always informs what you're seeing but um i think the score was used to great effect here and you know obviously the sound design and everything and i think i think it would be foolish (laughs) to not mention it to some degree i honestly don't really know what else i can say about it other than it to me it was perfectly done and and i love the score and i'm not sure who did it and and i'm curious uh maybe some of you guys have some some insight there but i don't know i thought it was perfect Yeah, I mean, that that was the one thing I kind of wanted to bring up just because it really struck me how much it influenced, you know, the feeling like obviously I think you can make the argument that the sound of a movie is the most important part of a movie. Like if it's not realistic, mm-hmm. nothing else is going to work at all. Um, and I just really appreciated how much the sound element like really emphasized the, the hauntingness of this film, you know, like yeah. it just made it really kind of creepy like obviously it's a scary movie and stuff but just all like the kind of sounds they were making and the score Mm -hmm. and everything like just really elevated the whole film um yeah i thought i thought it was wonderful Yeah, totally. There's that scene where Halloran is like showing all the inventory and like the pantries and stuff. And like the music kicks in. You're like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're just like, well, oh, we've got Captain Crunch over here and some steaks over here. Yeah. That's also where he pulls is- the switcheroo with the, uh, with the, uh, Halloran can obviously read, you know, they, they speak telepathically. Oh, right? yeah. And we've got the music there and, and it makes you feel like, oh shit, this is the bad guy. Like this this guy is the reason for all the bad things. And obviously, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully that turns out to not be the case, but yeah. um, Justin, what, what do you think about the score here? Oh yeah. You know I mean? Great. And, and I think to a certain extent you, uh, you, you key in on it a lot more kind of like the horror movie uh, type genre, yeah. supernatural, like, you know, Ben's right. He said, you know, if you were watching any movie without a, without a score, it'd be jarring. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and yeah, this this one was done masterfully. You know, a great score is going to add to it, mm-hmm. add to uh, 
you know, I, I referenced kind of there we blood earlier. Um, that's another type of score where it just adds to uh, the emotion, the connection that you have with the characters, the, the connection that the viewer has with uh, what is happening yeah. you know, emotionally and not just through the plot. Um, and it's great. Yeah. When it's um, when it allows you to make that connection, but it isn't so overbearing that you, you become aware that, the score is, you know, creating this emotion with me. It, it's yeah. kind of enhancing, you know, enhancing the experience. That's a good point because the score is definitely, uh, I, I feel like the score in this movie sits up front, you know, like you, you're always aware that there's some sort of music or there's some sort of uh, uh, auditory um, sensation, right? Like you, you're never, uh, to me, the score was always present, but it didn't seem obvious or it didn't seem like it's it, it it definitely seemed to go hand in hand with what you were seeing it wasn't like what you're seeing isn't terrifying and the score is trying to make it seem that way yeah. it seemed like an actual auditory representation of what you're seeing on screen and it's it's really impressive I know, I know like you know ben you and i have talked about it you know with audio being uh arguably the most the most important part of a visual medium which is strange but um i feel like it was perfectly done here Mm -hmm. um i didn't write this on our thing uh our little shared document but i was curious we've we've talked about how meticulous and how you know quote perfect uh this movie is but i'm curious if you guys had any nitpicks or or anything that stood out to you that I had one. The only reason I asked this is because I had one and I'm selfish and I want to talk about it. So I'm going to make you guys talk about it too. But, you know, Ben, you and I have worked with drone footage quite a bit. And one thing that used to be a problem was cutting out the, you can see the prop shadow. Mm -hmm. And there was one shot, like, first of all, before I, you know, critique this, I have to shout out like the aerial footage in the beginning of this film, following the car around was just, absolutely incredible it's hard enough to get a steady shot with the technology we have now with drones and gimbals and the fact they were able to do this with a film camera in some whatever helicopter in colorado and and get these incredible shots is one thing but there was some prop shadow in one of the shots the aerial shots which really (laughs) bumped me out as someone who's had to deal with that personally and the fact that kubrick let it happen upset me <laughs> maybe more than it should have so that's probably the only thing i could pick apart from this movie and i'm curious and i know you guys weren't prompted but did you have any nitpicks or anything that stood out to you that kind of took you out of the movie at all justin maybe i'll start with you well i'm definitely gonna have to look for that prop shadow um, <laughs> that'll be interesting um i you know now you're talking about that i know that so the city cam and a lot of it might be just due to uh you know obviously the technology you can't compare it you know you know, it's not fair to compare it to what you have now sure. necessarily. But uh, there were a couple of times where it kind of took me out. I think there was one state of Kim shot of um, Wendy when she's had, I think it's near the end of the film when she has a knife and I could almost feel the steady cam judder yeah. a little bit. And that took me out of the film, you know, for just a split second. Cause it, you know, I realized, Oh, that's, that's kind of a, you know, a steady cam bump right there. Yeah. Or something like that. But, uh, and maybe it was almost necessary. Cause like, <laughs> you know, we don't want to we don't want to go as crazy as the characters we're seeing on screen so maybe a slight bump back to reality might not be the worst thing hey it's okay you're just watching a movie what about you matt <laughs> was, did anything stick out to you that you can think of uh not really i mean there's those i mean those craft 
you know, critiques that I don't ever really think about. And for the most part, I don't have complaints about. I know there's like stylistic, like shaky cam stuff these days that like it's more of a choice that they do that I'm like, oh, I don't really love all the shaky cam in this uh in this movie. But um I did notice some of the steady cam stuff. Um but I guess I'm not as big of a snob about those type of things to be like, ah, aha. Yeah. That you know, but <laughs> that's fair. Um I don't know. Yeah, I don't really have any any complaints. I'm sure if I had read the book, there'd be like something like Ben mentioned like the Shelley Duvall character just like basically not being anything like the, the character of the book. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that would have bothered me. Not to say that like not a book to movie comparison, but it's like, you know, if, if Hagrid's a short guy with blonde hair, yeah. you know, maybe maybe there's something wrong with it. Yeah, but, like if, if Frodo is somehow six feet tall, like that's <laughs> that's a problem. Uh Ben, you are the resident master editor here. You are my editing inspiration, filmmaking <laughs> guru. Uh, was there anything else that you that you could nitpick out of this? I mean, honestly, I I feel the like kind of the opposite on it. Like there were some issues, obviously, but it was shot by the dude who literally created the Steadicam. Okay. Um, his name is Garrett <laughs> Brown, and he Did had they only created for the three wheel the the big wheel scenes because I loved those scenes. I mean, that they yeah they that was one of the first ones I think to use the wheelchair technique to shoot that where mm. they put the camera low to the ground and he was just kind of in this like wheelchair rig having someone push him while he was holding it which was cool but yeah it's the dude who like created it and it was used i think for the first time on rocky just like four years earlier so um I, I, the one thing i wanted to mention it's it i meant to mention it earlier and it's the opposite of a nitpick it just goes back to the sound design though in that scene where the the three-wheeler goes over the carpet and then on oh, the yeah, hardwood yeah. and then over the carpet like man yep. the sound design is so so good okay <laughs> so there's awesome. my second okay. nitpick because they didn't always do that i don't know because that stuck out to me i was like that is incredible like the the attention to detail to yeah. really accentuate those sounds but they didn't always do it and i don't know if that's by design or yeah, by accident sure. but um i i i will agree with you and disagree and make it my second nitpick perfect <laughs> and it's you know it, it's hard to conflict it's mm. it's hard to nitpick a, a movie like this and a director like kubrick i mean we've at length discussed the means at which he took you know to to get where we got get where we ended up with his films but um in the end every kubrick film that i've seen is you know i i don't want to say perfect but they are it seems that what we see is what he wanted us to see and yeah. uh that's a hard thing to do and so i think it's something that should be celebrated but also you know questioned as to whether or not it was all worth it um for me i, I think a hesitant yes it was worth it but um unless you guys have anything else you want to talk about i think we can wrap up here we've taken up plenty of our our <laughs> esteemed guests time um i know it's getting late there in salt lake city so um if you guys have anything else you want to add go ahead feel free to stop me but otherwise uh thank you to whoever you are out there listening to us on spotify watching us on youtube or wherever else you find us we really appreciate you being here um we we truly want this to be a collaborative experience and and a real movie club. Um, I know personally, I was looking over my, my letterboxed diary of uh, films I've watched over the past few years. And I can honestly say like, I wouldn't have seen any of it without this club. So without Ben, Matt and people like Justin 
it's it's really been uh, a, a it's really been a blast for me, and it's something I've really treasured, and it's it's it means a lot to me. So, if you're here participating with us from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. And I imagine that Ben and Matt and Justin feel the same way. Um, Make sure you tell your friends about it if you're enjoying it. Um, shoot us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Tell your parents. Tell your kids. Uh, <laughs> whoever, whoever, whoever you want to tell about, whoever you think would appreciate this, uh, pass it on to them, and we sure would appreciate them. And Justin, thanks again so much for joining us. You've you've been one of our longest standing supporters. So um, I don't know. Do you have anything you want to promote? Any 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 websites or social medias or anything? No, no, I'm good. I just, I appreciate the opportunity to get on here and, and talk with you guys. I enjoy talking about film and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's great to kind of hear other people's perspectives and point of view. And, and you know, I learned a lot. So uh, yeah, it's a good time. Absolutely. Well, I truly hope you'll come back. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen the schedule. I, you have all, you have our contact information. So if you want to come back for anything, I truly hope you do. And uh, I'll leave it at that and we'll sign off from here. Thanks everyone. Okay. See Thanks. ya. TV and no beer make Homer something something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! Ah!